Good evening, my fellow citizens. This government, as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. It's the evening of October 22, 1962. You're laying on your stomach, basked in the light of the TV. Your nose is buried in the pages of a novel while you're kicking your feet like a gentle pendulum and hands pressed over both ears. Every now and then, the evening news slips between your fingers and makes you nauseous. Turn that off. It's time for dinner, your mother says. Dad pries himself from his chair and switches off the set. You hop to your feet and follow him to the table. Your little brother practically trips over himself, rushing to the kitchen. Would you say grace, dear? Mom requests. Dad clears his throat. Heavenly Father, thank you for this meal our family, and everything you've provided us. Please keep our family and this nation safe and help guide our leaders to a peaceful end. Bless this food to our bodies. Amen. Mom tries to load your plate, but you protest. I don't feel good. Your parents exchange a glance. Elizabeth, try to eat something, your mom smiles. I'm not hungry. Your dad gives you a stern look. What did you hear at school? I just don't want to go to that stupid cabin. Elizabeth Brown, your mother recoils. It's only going to be for a few days, Liz, Dad says. You don't know that. Your attitude lately. What's gotten into you, Mother scolds. A girl only turns ten once, and not all of them have to miss their birthday, says Dad. At dinner? Really? Your dad stands from the table and walks over to the phone. Johnson's residence. Ah, hell. Are you serious? Okay, thanks. Dad sighs and hangs up the receiver. What's wrong? Mom asks, looking at Dad with a furrowed brow. That was Jim. He was just in town. Says people raided the general store of canned food. Dad puts both of his hands on his hips and stares out the kitchen window at the looming night. We're going to finish dinner, then pack up and get out of here sooner than later. Many, if not most, people have heard of the KGB. Their spycraft is legendary, and their presence was menacing. To Americans, they were the elusive boogeyman in the shadows of Cold War events. And so intertwined were they in shaping the Cold War. A conflict that spanned many continents and different fields of study, from aviation to architecture to geopolitics to consumerism. I honestly felt a ways out of my element in writing this episode. Remember, this is all a one-man show, so there is only so much I can do. Now, excuses aside, what I have for you for the next couple weeks are stories and details about the early KGB how they operated, the men who led it, and the influence they exerted. There is ample information about the KGB in the media sphere. They're much less obscure than, say, the Okhrana, and probably the most recognizable Russian spy agency. And I'd bet money they're the most infamous spy agency in history ever. Because this topic is so gargantuan, we're going to approach this a little differently. 
Instead of one two plus hour long block of content every month and a half, I'll drop several shorter episodes about the KGB each week. This will make tackling the KGB more manageable, seeing as they have 30 plus years of history and methods to cover, and I hope this arrangement will help me be more consistent in getting content out. Before we jump into things, I have some plugs and updates about the show. You can now join my Patreon at patreon.com slash secretpolicepodcast. We're cultivating a budding community here, and you should be a part of it. Becoming an agent of the Secret Police means you gain access to bonus episodes where we use ChatGPT to generate some interesting results regarding Secret Police. I'm also planning a Patreon-only miniseries about my personal experience in the 2020 Minneapolis riots. You also gain behind-the-scenes access and early episode drops. I also launched a very crude website, secretpolicepodcast.com, where you can also donate to the show via PayPal if that suits you better. It takes me about 70 to 80 hours to put one of these big episodes together from research to release. So any support that you can give is much appreciated. All donations are reinvested into the show to make the best possible listening and community experience for you. That means paying for podcast hosting and website hosting. If you want to support me non-monetarily, please throw me some stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Whatever support you give is much appreciated. You can also follow me on Twitter at hush underscore popo or Instagram at secret police podcast. Now, onward to the KGB. In this sixth episode of our Russia series, we are going to explore the history and methods of the KGB. We'll look at KGB operations during the Cold War, some of their most infamous agents, and much more. We will also explore the life and leadership of our next Kremlin leader, Nikita Khrushchev, and the power he wielded through the KGB. How did Khrushchev's style differ from Stalin's? How did the KGB recruit agents even inside free nations? What was the KGB's role in major Cold War events like the Cuban Missile Crisis? You're listening to the Secret Police Podcast. Do you have a problem with authority? Because I do. And I'm on a mission to help us build a healthy skepticism towards those in power. My name is Jack, and I spend hours researching and engaging with my morbid curiosity of dictatorships and share with you the history and methods of the world's most brutal secret police forces. We look at how secret police enforce tyranny and strike fear in their people. Let's pick up where we left off. The Soviets emerged victorious over the scourge of Nazi horrors in May 1945. Joseph Stalin's secret police, the NKVD, fought alongside the Red Army as they pushed the Germans to the bleeding and battered heart of the Third Reich, Berlin. The NKVD employed psychological warfare on their enemies and deported both civilians and combatants from captured territories into the vast Russian interior. Stalin was at the height of his power in 1945 with a victory in the Great Patriotic War. At this point in his rule, 
The risk of an uprising against Stalin was probably at the lowest point than at any other time in his leadership. But he wasn't about to let this much power slip. Remember the phrase, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Increasingly paranoid, and having suffered several cardiac events in his old age, Stalin mobilized for another purge. Some returning Red Army soldiers were sent to gulags. Doctors, especially Jewish doctors, were targeted for interrogations, imprisonment, and execution. Despite Stalin's immense power, the reality was that the Soviet Union reeled from the devastation the Nazis introduced. The human and economic cost of victory was immeasurable, and the scars were visible in flattened cities and among displaced Soviet citizens. To make matters worse, the Soviets would soon be dragged into a cold war with the United States. America demonstrated the hellish power of nuclear weapons on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The Soviets felt threatened, and Stalin assigned NKVD chief Lavrenti Beria to build a nuclear weapon within five years. The Soviets were in no shape to meet this goal organically given the destruction of their infrastructure during the war, but what they lacked in industrial and scientific ability in 1945, the Soviets more than made up for in espionage capability. The NKVD infiltrated the Manhattan Project, and they persuaded some British physicists, sympathetic to communism, to hand over nuclear secrets. Soviet engineers were able to reverse-engineer their own bomb from stolen materials. The Soviets successfully detonated their first atomic bomb, RDS-1, on August 29, 1949, and the nuclear dimension of the Cold War hung over the heads of all life on Earth. By this point, the fearsome NKVD reorganized into the MVD, but they were no less subservient to the iron fist of an increasingly ill Stalin. Stalin died on March 5, 1953, and a tectonic power vacuum opened in the Kremlin. We know that Nikita Khrushchev emerged victorious over his rivals, and that the vile Lavrenti Beria was executed. We will dive into greater detail on how Khrushchev maneuvered and survived to take the reins of power. And we will see how the Soviet secret police transformed into the most famous spy agency in history. Let's first meet Nikita Khrushchev. Nikita Sergeyevich Khrushchev was born on April 17th in 1894 in Kalinovka, Russia, a small town near the Ukrainian border. His family's background was as proletarian as you could get. His grandfather was a serf in the Russian Empire, and his dad was a coal miner. Religion doesn't appear to have been a big part of Khrushchev's life, but his family followed the teachings of Christianity, presumably within the Orthodox tradition. In 1908, when Khrushchev was around 14, the family relocated to Yuzovka in Ukraine, modern-day Donetsk. It was here that Khrushchev entered the industrial workforce as a pipe fitter and honed his skills to become a talented metal worker. Khrushchev saw a career path for himself and a future in engineering. His first wife, an educated woman named Yefrosinia, encouraged him to pursue his budding aspirations. They were married in 1914 and had two children, 
Yulia, born in 1915, and Leonid, born in 1917. Then some naughty terrorist in Serbia had to go and make an assassin of himself and shoot an important guy, Franz Ferdinand, the Archduke of Austria-Hungary. This assassination triggered a web of alliances and defense pacts between European powers and set into motion the First World War. Russia would soon mobilize its armies to fight the Austrian-Hungarians because Austria-Hungary attacked Serbia and the Russians were allied with Serbia. I swear, World War I was like when people in your friend group have the brilliant idea to date, then they break up and everyone has to pick sides, but with a lot more guns and millions of deaths. Initially, Khrushchev's job in the industrial sector actually kept him out of the Imperial Russian Army. His post as a metal worker was too valuable for it to be vacated. However, as we know from previous episodes, Russians were getting fed up with Tsar Nicholas, his family, the opulence, and their apparent indifference towards the suffering of the people. The February Revolution forced the Tsar to resign, and power was transferred to the provisional government led by Alexander Kerensky. For a much more deep dive into that transition from the Tsar to the Bolsheviks, listen to part two and part three. People in Ukraine were overjoyed because the nation was freed from Tsarist rule. Perhaps this was a chance at independence from the Russian state apparatus. Later in 1917, Lenin organized and successfully carried out the Bolshevik Revolution by taking control of key government buildings in Petrograd, modern-day St. Petersburg. The provisional government was forced out, and Kerensky fled to France. But the Bolsheviks' grip on power met substantial resistance. In Ukraine, where Khrushchev was still living and working, civil war erupted between the Reds, or the Bolshevik faction, and the Whites, the faction loyal to the Tsars. In January 1919, Khrushchev joined the Red Army. He was made a political commissar and fought against both the White Army and Polish forces that invaded Ukraine. In October 1922, the Red Army claimed victory, and only a couple months later, in December, the Union of the Soviet Socialist Republics was declared. Khrushchev could hardly celebrate because around the time the war ended, his wife, Yefrosnia, died. She was likely a victim of typhus, or she was perhaps a victim of famine due to the wartime conditions. And this is an interesting personal connection to Stalin's background because he also lost his first wife to typhus. Me just speculating, I wonder how much that mutual experience influenced the relationship between the two men. To make matters more complicated, Khrushchev had two kids to feed, but his education was also important to him. A tough situation, right? To be a a single parent and needing to support your children, but also to invest in yourself so that you and your children can have a better life. Medals awarded to the good and hardworking single parents out there. Khrushchev enrolled at a Soviet workers' school in Yuzovka. It was perhaps in school, rather than in the Red Army, where he became loyal to the Bolshevik regime Because had the Tsars stayed in power, Khrushchev's educational prospects were murky at at best, being a peasant from one of uh, Imperial Russia's subjugated nations. With the Bolsheviks in town, it was a different story. 
he had access to education and resources previously locked away behind the elite walls of Russia's bourgeois class. Khrushchev's early career move that initiated a steady rise to power was joining the Yuzovka Student Communist Party and becoming its leader. He also met and married his second wife, Nina Petrovna, in 1924. From his leadership position in the student group, the Communist Party appointed Khrushchev to the leader of the regional Yuzovka Communist Party. He was later assigned to the much larger city of Kharkiv. Then he got a big boy job in the Communist Party in Kiev itself. Considering that Khrushchev started as a metal worker, this was pretty incredible. Khrushchev's ambition, though, could not be contained in a box. He wanted to extend his career into the very heart of the communist world itself. In 1929, the Khrushchev family relocated to Moscow, where Nikita was supposed to be enrolled in school to study metallurgy, but in reality, he was rubbing shoulders with Communist Party members, including Lazar Kaganovich, who took Khrushchev under his wing. It's all about who you know. Nikita and Nina would also have the first of, uh, uh, let's see, of their three children, a daughter named Rada in 1929, Sergei followed in 1939, and Elena in 1937. Sergei, the most well-known of the children, has done numerous interviews over the years about his experience with his father. He was a highly valuable primary source of history until his death on June 25th, 2020. So Papa Bear Khrushchev was schmoozing party bosses and building a power base. He was assigned the enormous task of constructing the Moscow Metro. And this project was completed so well that Khrushchev was appointed to be basically the mayor or governor of Moscow. Now he's really on fire. If a poor metal worker can rise to become the governor of Moscow, then maybe even you can get out of bed before noon. So, wait a minute, how is it Khrushchev didn't have a target on his back during Stalin's purges? Because with his steady rise, competency, and power base, he should have been on the Bolshevik chopping block, right? Well, Khrushchev had a quality that set him apart from the rest of the pack, and not in a bad way. At least, not in a way that would single him out as a threat to Stalin. Khrushchev was the court jester. He was like your bald, bumbling uncle, who's had too many beers at a family barbecue. At only 5'2 and stocky, Khrushchev didn't present a threat. He played the part of the village idiot and drank like a college freshman at homecoming. At those liquor-fueled late-night dinners, Stalin would often ask Khrushchev to do funny dances for the inner circle's amusement. But hey, to be fair, if Stalin asks you to do a dance, you do it. But we know Khrushchev was really no fool. In the last episode, Khrushchev demonstrated his quick thinking when dealing with Stalin by not falling for Stalin's tricks when the dictator criticized other members of the inner circle. Khrushchev both survived and gained from the purges since different jobs opened up to him as the previous tenants of those positions were shot or sent to waste away in Siberia. Despite Khrushchev's humble origins, personal experience with loss, and jovial attitude, his hands were not free of blood. As early as 1932, Khrushchev was building a good working relationship with Stalin. When Stalin initiated the Great Purge in 1934, which included executions, deportations, imprisonment, and show trials, Khrushchev cheered on with generous support. But, like, what else was he supposed to do? 
Of the purges, Khrushchev said, quote, Everyone who rejoices in the success achieved in our country, the victories of our party led by the great Stalin, will find only one word suitable for the mercenary fascist dogs of the Trotskyite Zinoviet gang. That word is execution, end quote. Now he's less funny, right? Ironic, too, because earlier in his career, Khrushchev was more aligned with Trotsky than with Stalin. And he personally confessed to Stalin his brief infatuation with Trotsky. Yet, he was not labeled an enemy of the state and killed. Instead, by March 1939, Khrushchev was made a full member of the Politburo. Khrushchev threw an estimated 38 of his close colleagues under Stalin's bus. 35 of those were killed. The surviving three were scattered around the Soviet Union. It was party protocol that, at least within the Moscow Oblast, that Khrushchev signed off on the arrests of those who worked with him, and he approved each one, doing little to nothing to save anyone he may have considered a friend. Khrushchev himself could have, with any wrong move, been arrested, shot, or sent to Siberia, and despite his own actions against people he knew, he had no illusions of being immune to Stalin's terror. In 1937, Stalin appointed Khrushchev to serve with the Communist Party of Ukraine in Kiev. Khrushchev cleaned house among the high ranks of the party in Ukraine, having increased the rate of arrests and executions in a span of several months. Now, to be somewhat fair, he was getting the idea that at least some of the denunciations against officials were trumped up because Khrushchev himself experienced an unsuccessful denunciation in Kiev. He used his bald Khrushchev noggin and wondered, wait, I can't be the only one. So he had an idea of what was happening. Not just that, but with his lofty position in the Communist Party, he must have been aware of false charges and wrongful executions. I should also point out that Khrushchev found the effects of agricultural collectivization and grain quotas on Ukraine particularly distasteful. Ukraine was ravaged by famine created by Stalin's policies that culminated in man-made disasters like the Holodomor. Because Khrushchev was Ukrainian, or you could say he was Soviet but hailed from Ukraine, he considered Ukraine his homeland. When the Soviets invaded Poland, fulfilling their end of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, Khrushchev led troops into parts of eastern Poland that would eventually be absorbed into the Ukraine SSR. In June 1941, Nazi Germany invaded the Soviet Union. Khrushchev served on multiple fronts as the Germans and the Soviets fought across Eastern Europe and Russia. Stalin appointed him to political commissar. A commissar, by the way, is a communist officer tasked with political indoctrination and enforcement of party loyalty. Khrushchev's job was to keep commanders on the battlefield under Stalin's tight leash. And at the same time, those same commanders used him to hopefully influence Stalin himself. Khrushchev commanded troops during the Battle of Kiev, which did not go well for the Red Army, and would instill a seat of doubt in the mind, uh, in his mind about Stalin's competency as a military leader, which Khrushchev later revealed in his memoirs. Of the battle, Khrushchev said, quote, But let me return to the enemy breakthrough in the Kiev area, the encirclement of our group, and the destruction of the 37th Army. Later, the 5th Army also perished. All of this was senseless 
and from the military point of view, a display of ignorance, incompetence, and illiteracy. There you have the result of not taking a step backward. We were unable to save these troops because we didn't withdraw them. And as a result, we simply lost them. And yet, it was possible to allow this not to happen. End quote. What happened was Stalin ordered the Red Army to hold their positions at Kiev, but they were soon surrounded by German forces. According to Soviet sources, so take this with a grain of salt, about 150,000 of the nearly 700,000 Red Army troops managed to escape encirclement. There is some disagreement as to the level of Khrushchev's involvement in abandoning Kiev. For example, Field Marshal Zhukov wrote that Khrushchev agreed with Stalin to avoid withdrawal, but perhaps it was the decision of another general to hold the line. In early May 1942, Khrushchev was part of a failed assault on Kharkiv, where the Red Army was fooled into a trap and suffered over 200,000 killed or captured. Khrushchev was recalled to Moscow, where a furious Stalin essentially threatened to kill him, but instead, Khrushchev was redeployed to the epic meat grinder of Stalingrad. In August 1942, Khrushchev arrived in Stalingrad, and an overall command of the city's defenses was Vasily Choykov. Rather than involving himself with war planning, Khrushchev checked troop readiness, boosted morale, and conducted interrogations of German POWs, including recruiting some of those POWs for propaganda. He spent most of his time during the battle in the city itself, but occasionally visited Stalin in Moscow. Khrushchev was again struck with personal tragedy under what I think are sketchy circumstances. On March 11, 1943, his son, Leonid, was shot down and likely killed. I say likely because his death was a little sus. Leonid Khrushchev was part of the Soviet 134th Bomber Aviation Regiment, 46th Air Division, who previously saw combat in Finland. On March 11, 1943, Leonid was piloting a Yakolev or Yak-7B fighter plane. His squadron reported that they saw Leonid's plane explode after being hit by shots from a German Fokker FW-190. The wreckage likely crashed into territory controlled by resistance movements loyal to, so to the Soviets, but several search planes attempted to locate the wreckage after the battle, but none were successful. The lack of body and the fact that Leonid was Khrushchev's son sparked ongoing controversy and conspiracy theories. One line of speculation postulates that Leonid survived, then collaborated with the Germans before being recaptured by the Soviets, and then Stalin had him shot, despite Khrushchev's begging for his son's life. And therefore, Khrushchev denounced Stalin in his secret speech, which we will get into later. There is no evidence this happened, by the way, but some historians claim Leonid's file was tampered with after the war further adding to the murky nature of Leonid's death-slash-disappearance, Leonid's wife, Lubia Khrushchev, was accused of spying, arrested, and sent to a labor camp. Her son, by a previous relationship, Tolia, bounced around different orphanages while Leonid's daughter was taken in and raised by Nikita and Nina. Very tragic that Tolia was basically sent to the dogs and forgotten, after being torn away from his mother. It's awful that Liuba was sent to God knows where to live in freezing squalor with death and rape lurking behind barbed wire. Stalin's system was horrifically effective at breaking up families and sending women and children to hell. 
After the Soviets defeated the Germans at Stalingrad, Khrushchev moved with a detachment of troops to the Battle of Kursk in July 1943, one of the major turning points of the Eastern Front in favor of the Soviets. November 1943, Khrushchev accompanied troops to retake Kiev. Battles on the Eastern Front continued until May 1945, but Khrushchev was increasingly preoccupied with rebuilding Ukraine having been appointed to the position of Premier of the Ukraine SSR. In 1949, Khrushchev was recalled to Moscow to become part of Stalin's inner circle alongside the likes of NKVD Chief Lavrenti Beria, Foreign Minister Vyacheslav Molotov, and Party Secretary Georgi Melenkov. He got to party with Stalin and his goons during their late-night hurrahs at Stalin's dacha. But these weren't exactly fun times for Khrushchev, whose role in the social circle was reduced to that of, like I said, the court jester, and danced for Stalin, the most infamous but oddly alluring Soviet striptease. According to his memoirs, Khrushchev took late naps so he wouldn't fall asleep in Stalin's presence. We've talked about these late-night ragers before. Lots of food, and even more booze until three or so in the morning, for multiple days, and the inner circle was expected to both perform their jobs and party again the following night. Stalin watered down his own drinks, while everyone else consumed the real stuff. From personal experience, when I was 22, back in my undergrad days, I attended a conference in New York City with some peers from the College of Business. Our last night at this conference, the four of us met up with these two derivatives traders that we knew from Barclays and went clubbing near NYU. Um, Of course, we bounced around town, and yes, alcohol was involved. Um, We didn't make it back to our hotel until about 4 a.m. Pretty sure I fell asleep in my suit. We had to be up two hours later for the last day of the conference, and I remember waking up and having that like hangover brain fog where you just feel heavy and groggy and and gross. I do not do stuff like that anymore. But imagine doing that night after night, having to work your high-level government job with some secret police and your murderous boss breathing down your neck in your 50s. The sleep deprivation and the fear these guys must have felt was, was probably suffocating. And that would still be preferable to a gulag. Khrushchev is still somehow able to get stuff done in this time. In 1950, he initiated a large-scale housing program and expanded the supply of housing across Moscow. This was possible by constructing pre-made reinforced concrete structures and piecing them together in five- to six-story apartments, with no elevators, no balconies, no frills. The iconic commie box, or Khrushchevkas, as they're called. And they're everywhere in Eastern Europe. On March 1st, 1953, Stalin suffered a hemorrhagic stroke and died on March 5th. The epic power struggle between Stalin's lackeys ensued. How did Khrushchev maneuver and outwit his rivals to power? Stalin didn't exactly set up a succession plan for fear of losing his power. At the time of his death, the closest person to succeeding Stalin was Georgi Malenkov. But Beria, as we know, had the power base to actually take the throne for himself, with his literal army of MVD troops. Khrushchev just wasn't the most likely to succeed Stalin. But remember, after Lenin's death, people thought the same thing about Stalin. Malenkov was not able to hold on to power and resigned his position as Secretariat of the Central Committee on March 14th. 
which benefited Khrushchev, who was elected first secretary of the Communist Party. Both Khrushchev and Beria proposed liberalizing reforms to loosen the grip Stalin had on the Soviet Union and other occupied territories like East Germany. The two men butted heads when it came to agreeing on proposals. However, Khrushchev was concerned that Beria would betray them, likely by staging a military coup, and have them all executed. In my opinion, I don't doubt Beria would have done this because he was a creepy psychopathic killer. So Khrushchev and Malenkov fist-bumped and powered up to face Beria. Or, rather, they blocked Beria's reforms in committee. Then they persuaded chief of the MVD Sergei Kruglov and future KGB chief Ivan Serov to betray Beria. How did they convince MVD men to betray Beria? Money? Fine wines and dildos? One of Khrushchev's famous lap dances? Well, Sergei Kruglov replaced Beria as head of the NKVD in 1946. Perhaps this was Stalin's way of limiting Beria's power after the war because, well, that's a smart dictator thing to do, but also Beria might have been the only person Stalin feared. Kruglov made his career in Beria's NKVD, but was no fan of his. Ivan Serov, a deputy commissar of the NKVD and contributing founder of the East German secret police, the Stasi, conspired against Beria to save his own career. I couldn't find exact details on what Khrushchev and Malenkov offered Serlov and Kruglov to make betrayal more worth their while rather than maintaining the status quo. If I had to guess, probably money or job guarantees. So Khrushchev had his chess pieces set up and was ready to attack. On June 26, 1953, Beria was arrested during a presidium meeting. They kept that walking garbage pile around for six months until he was quietly and secretly tried and executed on December 23rd. Khrushchev successfully swept away his, and likely the Soviet Union's, most dangerous domestic threat. The power struggle wasn't over, though. Khrushchev had his sights set on Malenkov, and he was going to dance all over him. Both men controlled different power bases, Malenkov with the organs of the state and public support. Khrushchev with the Communist Party. But see, the party was really where the power was. The party was the Alpha and the Omega. The Soviet Union started, lived, and died with the party. Khrushchev and Malenkov sought to enact different reforms in the agricultural space and open the government up more to the public. Khrushchev worked to appoint loyal party members to key positions in the Central Committee. Eventually, Malenkov was sidelined. He just couldn't match the support or power base of Khrushchev. There was also damning evidence of Malenkov's involvement in Stalin's crimes. So he was removed from power, and Khrushchev became both the first secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and premier of the Soviet Union. Malenkov didn't completely go away yet, though. He and Molotov and Kaganovich, remember, Khrushchev was his protege, attempted a coup against Khrushchev in 1957, but Khrushchev had the solid support of Georgi Zhukov and the Red Army. So the coup failed, and Malenkov was exiled to Kazakhstan, but not to a labor camp, nor was he shot. Khrushchev was on top, the man who accomplished the monumental task of being Stalin's ultimate successor may have acted like a clown to survive, but he was not to be messed with. He would almost immediately pursue a sweeping campaign of destalinization, an end to the cult of personality that shackled the Soviet people and culture. 
Khrushchev even had Stalin's embalmed body removed from Lenin's mausoleum and buried on the Kremlin grounds, a full display of commitment to defiling the old boss. His ascension would not have been possible without the support of the security services. Behind the scenes, the secret police were also making transformations and changing with the times. They took on new roles in a post-Stalin Soviet Union, focusing their efforts abroad. We'll leave Khrushchev here for now. Next week, we'll explore the final and most legendary form of the Cheka, Komitet Kostudas Vinoy Bezopesnosti, the KGB. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember to check out patreon.com slash secretpolicepodcast or visit secretpolice.com for one-time donations on PayPal. I also accept stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Agents dismissed. Agents dismissed.